Hello, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. I've been away on sabbatical this summer and have been looking forward to getting back to the sacraments. So without further ado, let's jump back in where we left off. So one of the principal historic Christian sacraments is sometimes referred to as Holy Communion or as the Mass or as the Divine Liturgy, and all these things really mean the same thing. And in the early church, the sacrament was called the Eucharist. Eucharistia in Greek means the great thanksgiving. So what is the Eucharist? What did it mean to the early church? How did they understand what was going on? Why did they find it so important? What's up with all this? We spoke before about how the sacrament has an outer nature and an inner nature. So the outer nature of the Eucharist is food. It's bread and wine. For a portion of the world's population today, food is kind of like an interesting thing to do. There are people who spend a lot of time documenting the meals they eat and posting them on social media. There are people who spend tremendous amounts of time learning to cook complex dishes and buying the best sorts of organic produce and so forth. None of this is wrong. Maybe the like posting on social media thing is carried a little too far sometimes, but food is a great joy. It's one of the great aesthetic pleasures of life. And for this portion of the world's population, you'll say, I'm hungry. That's a cue that it's time to go have one of these interesting, enjoyable experiences. And so you think, should we go get Thai food? Should we be kind of thrifty and healthy and make a salad at home? Do you want to go get a burger? What, what do you feel like eating is kind of the question. But for another portion of the world's population, a larger portion, food is not primarily an aesthetic experience. It's not primarily a treat or an interesting thing to do or a way to break up the workday. Food is just what you need to survive. It's maybe more like oxygen. It's very rare that you say, you know, what kind of oxygen should we have today? Should we go out for a kind of strawberry-flavored oxygen? Should we be real bad and have some really, like, uh, pollution-laden oxygen and just go crazy? Instead, breathing is just what we do to stay alive. And if for some reason you are trapped in a place without oxygen, you don't really care what kind of oxygen you're having. You just really need some oxygen. So for people in, say, um, rural Malawi, there's not this question of uh, what do you feel like eating tonight? The question is, do we have enough rain and enough sun for our crops to grow? And if the answer to this is yes, then everybody's going to eat. And there may not be a tremendous amount of diversity in the cuisine, but you're going to eat, you're going to be fed, your kids are going to be healthy, everybody's going to be great. If there is too much water and it floods, if there's not enough water and there's a drought, then the crops don't grow. Peas don't grow, the corn doesn't grow, the chickens uh, don't have enough to eat, and nobody eats, and there's mass starvation, and your children's lives are at risk. So in a big chunk of the world food is not primarily like something you do for fun. It's what you do to survive. And every bite of food is a little unit of life entering your body. And according to one Russian theologian, the true nature of food is fulfilled in the Eucharist. It is in the Eucharist that we learn what it is to actually have life enter our bodies. 
So the external nature of the Eucharist is food, it's bread and wine, like we talked about last time, external, internal. The internal is that same sanctifying grace, this transformative grace of Christ. But as we talked about last time, the grace part is harder to put your finger on. So let's dive into some of the earliest writings we have from the early Christians and see what they thought about the Eucharist. What's happening? What's it for? What's it all about? So the first place to ask this question might be, the Bible. What does the Bible actually say about Holy Communion? And this is a really tricky question to ask, because we have several references to Holy Communion, especially in 1 Corinthians, in the early part of Acts, but they're of this kind of incidental character. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, and here's the section on how you do the Eucharist. This is really because everybody was already doing the Eucharist. They didn't need to be told. In fact, these letters from Paul the Gospels being written by apostles and disciples, these are actually being read in a service where the Eucharist is happening. They're written to be read in that service. So, if you were to go out and buy the brand new, amazing, phenomenal, so radically different new iPhone, I don't actually know that any of that is true, um, you would maybe pick up the instruction manual to figure out how to switch between the 13 new different types of cameras and how to change the whatever it is that does this amazing cool new thing that everybody's interested in. But if you were going to make a call, you probably wouldn't first look in the instruction manual. You wouldn't look like look up in the back like how to dial mom and you wouldn't go to the section that has like, okay, to enter a phone number, start pressing these numbers. Typically, you're going to have three numbers at the beginning, three in the middle and four at the end. And after you dial that, hit the little icon that looks like a phone and hold it up to your ear and just speak normally as if the other person is actually in the room with you. They will hear your voice without you having to shout. None of that's there because we all know how to make a phone call. Like, you don't look in the iPhone manual to figure out what is a phone. Instead, you're looking for the kind of specifics about the things you don't know. So, when the Eucharist comes up in the New Testament, it's not a start from scratch, here's how to do it and here's what it all means. Instead, it's looking at some specific elements that need to be tweaked or that are getting messed up or people are misinterpreting. So, looking in Holy Scripture for kind of Holy Eucharist 101 is a challenging thing. So how do we even know it was important to the early church? In part, it's because we have so much writing from early church writers about the Eucharist. And this is true not only for the early church writers, but also for pagan writers writing about Christianity. We have this letter from 111 AD from the Roman governor Pliny, and he's writing a letter to the emperor Trajan. And he says, Dear Emperor I've been uh, with the program, I've been making sure everything is done by the book, so of course I've been rounding up and torturing some Christians when they get reported to me, and when I put them to the torture, I found out this crazy thing. They get together before dawn on Sunday mornings, and they sing some hymns together to Christ as their God, and they make these vows not to steal and murder and bear false witness and so forth. And then they have this meal. But you know the crazy thing? It's not actually cannibalism. They don't actually murder anybody. Craziest thing, it's ordinary food. They have this essential meal that's part of their worship of ordinary food. 
So he's been torturing these deaconesses and slaves and children, all, this, all sorts of folks. And what he finds out is there's this meal that's integral to Christian worship as early as 111 AD. Even before this, we have Christian writers who are talking about the Eucharist. And these are not just Christian writers talking about the Eucharist in one little corner of Christianity. There are all these people flung all over the globe who didn't know each other, had no contact with one another, that are writing tons of stuff about the Eucharist, and it's all in exactly the same vein. So very early on, we have writers in Turkey, We have Justin Martyr, and then another writer who's a little bit less famous. We have in Syria, St. Ignatius of Antioch. In Egypt, Alexandria, we have the Epistle of Barnabas. We have Clement of Alexandria a tiny bit later. In Athens, we have the letter to Diognetus and also Athenagoras, both writing about the Eucharist. In Rome, we have St. Clement of Rome and maybe Hippolytus of Rome. In uh, Western France and Gaul, we have Irenaeus of Lyon. We have an inscription in Autun in uh, Carthage in uh, North Africa. We have Tertullian. We have St. Cyprian of Carthage. We have a book called the Didache. We don't really know where, where it's written, but it's extremely early that talks about the Eucharist. So all over the Greco-Roman world and even beyond the boundaries of the Greco-Roman world as early as the late 1st and early 2nd century, as early as the kind of like 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 100s, up into the 200s, we have all these people writing about the Eucharist. And there is very little disagreement in what the Eucharist is, what the Eucharist means, or whether or not it is incredibly important to the life of the church. So what did they all have to say? Ignatius of Antioch is one of the great figures of the early church. His writings have been lovingly preserved by generation after generation of Christians all over the world, and he dies in AD 108. This is crazy early. This guy was alive when most of the apostles were still alive. He was the student of St. John, the apostle of Christ. So this is like a really central, essential figure in Christianity. So, writing before 108 in his letters, he writes about the Eucharist, that it is the medicine of immortality, the antidote that we should not die, but live forever in Jesus Christ. So, in taking this true morsel of life into our bodies, in taking this holy communion with God into our bodies, death itself is being destroyed within us. Death is being overcome. The power of death loses its grip on us because we grow more and more into Christ through consuming the Eucharist. He criticizes a heretical group called the Docetists, and he says he criticizes them because they do not acknowledge that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, which suffered on behalf of our sins, which the Father in his goodness raised. That's in his epistle to the Smyrnaeans. He says, Be zealous to use one Eucharist, for there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ and one cup for union with his blood in his letter to the Philadelphians. So for Ignatius, The Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. I'll say more about this later, but this is not actually the doctrine of transubstantiation. Many people think, oh, it is the body and blood. Transubstantiation, that's actually something a lot more complicated, a bit different. So we'll get into that in a bit. But for the early church, suffice to say, and we'll go through lots more examples of what different people had to say about the Eucharist, but for 
Ignatius representing the early church, the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. And we as rational people want to say, wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. That's That seems crazy. There's a story I once heard an Orthodox priest tell in which he was assigned to a new church. And he got there and there was a myrrh streaming icon. This is a piece of um, Orthodox life, Orthodox um, devotional life in which icons are obviously extremely important to the Eastern Orthodox. And sometimes there are these miraculous icons that stream or weep this sweet smelling oil of myrrh that is completely inexplicable. It's not sap in the wood. It's not some weird kind of paint that's coming off. It's just like, seems to be just coming out of the icon and it's totally inexplicable. So he got to his parish and he was cleaning an icon and it started streaming out this sweet smelling balm of myrrh. And he was just amazed. He'd never experienced this before. It was astonishing. And so he he ran to report this to his bishop. He called his bishop and said, like, Bishop, I just need to tell you, I just got to this parish and we have this miraculous myrrh streaming icon. It's the real deal. It's actually streaming myrrh. You know, nobody's tampering with it. Nobody's sneaking some a myrrh pump into the bait, whatever. It's like, it's the real thing. This is so crazy. This is the craziest thing that's ever happened to me. And his bishop said, what happens on the altar at Holy Communion. He said, well, the, you know, we say the prayers and the bread and the wine become the body of blood of Christ and we distribute them to the people. And the bishop said, the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Christ? That's a miracle, right? And the priest was like, well, yeah, of course. And the bishop said, how come you never called me before? And hung up the phone. <laughs> so the, uh, I don't know if the story is true or not, but I think it's hilarious. The miracle of the Eucharist is completely incomprehensible and strange and crazy because to us it's just a cracker it's some vino in a cup and yet the faith of the church at least the early church for all these early christian writers is that that cracker or piece of bread or whatever and that wine in the chalice those are the body and blood of christ and a lot of people want to say that's just a bridge too far that's crazy Even in the Gospel of John, John remembers Christ saying to a big group of disciples and apostles, this is in uh, John chapter 6, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them." He goes on to say, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, does this offend you? He goes on to say, because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus in the Gospel of John uses tons of metaphors. He calls himself the door and the gate and the sheepfold and all these different things. And with all these metaphors, everybody's like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, you're the door. Yep, you're the gate. Yeah, you're the sheepfold. Yep, you're the true vine, etc., etc. But then when he says, my flesh is true food indeed and my blood is true drink indeed, everybody says, 
wait, what? You want us to eat your flesh and drink your blood? They're not taking this metaphorically. They're taking this as actually what Jesus is really saying to them. And they're like, that's bonkers. We're out of here. And even when he comes to the apostles and says, are you also going to leave? Because this is too hard a teaching. Peter doesn't say, no, 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 we totally get it. Like that, that one makes 100% sense to us. Those guys are all chumps. He says, where else can we go? I mean, this is totally mind boggling, but it's you or nothing. So we're sticking around, you know, you have the words of eternal life. And in a sense, that's our response to the mysteries of God, to the mysteries of the church. Yeah, I totally don't understand this. That makes no intuitive sense to me whatsoever. And yet, if this is what you say, well, you are God incarnate. So Ignatius seems pretty blunt about this idea that we are actually eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood in the Eucharist, uh, no matter how strange and incomprehensible that may be to us. What do some other early church writers say about the same theme? As in the New Testament, most early church writers discuss the Eucharist in passing. They're, they might say, this is the problem with the docetists, they don't understand Eucharistic theology, they think this, when in fact, obviously, we all know that this is the case, or whatever. But they're not setting out to say, like, um, here is the Eucharist for dummies, or whatever. One exception to this is Justin Martyr. And so Justin Martyr is writing about 50 years after Ignatius of Antioch. And Justin Martyr is actually writing to a pagan audience. He wants to say, you've heard all these rumors about Christianity. Let me set the record straight. Here's what our services actually look like. So writing in probably around the 160s AD, he says, the whole shebang, the big focus of our worship on Sundays is the Eucharist. It's only for those who have been baptized, not just to receive, but even be there for the Eucharistic service. And what what do we think is going on there? What is it that is so important about this bread and this wine? Why do we have to receive this Sunday by Sunday? He says, for we do not receive it as common bread or common drink. But just as Christ Jesus, our Savior, made flesh by the word of God, has both flesh and blood for our salvation, so also we have been taught that the food over which Eucharist, this prayer of thanksgiving, the food over which Eucharist has been made by the prayer of the word that is from him, that food from which our blood and flesh are by assimilation nourished, is both the flesh and the blood of the Jesus who was made flesh. For Justin Martyr also, it is the body and blood of Christ. It's not a reminder of the body and blood of Christ, nor is it a set of signs which help us to think about or conceive the body and blood of Christ or a symbol for our unity. It actually is the body and blood of Christ. What does that mean? Well, we don't know, because it's the mystery of God. They don't go deeper than that. There's no attempt to explain it or to rationalize it or to even make sense out of it. It's more bowing down before it. It's more adoringly receiving the body and blood of Christ so that we ourselves may be transformed into the body of Christ. So we've heard from a Turkish Christian, a Palestinian Christian who ends up being converted maybe in Ephesus and then dies at Rome. Irenaeus of Lyon, writing in Western France, says, For as the bread of the earth, 
receiving the invocation of God, is no longer common bread, but Eucharist, made up of two things, an earthly and a heavenly. So also our bodies, partaking of the Eucharist, are no longer corruptible, having the hope of the resurrection to eternity. He also says, the cup of mingled wine and the made bread receive the word of God, and the Eucharist becomes the body of Christ, and the substance of our flesh is increased and sustained by these. So for all these writers, there's this emphasis not on the specific philosophical transformation that's taking place, but on what the effect is for us, that it is for Ignatius killing death within our bodies, that it is for Irenaeus of Lyon, it's actually changing us and forming us, as well as for Justin Martyr. The emphasis is very much on why do we desperately need the Eucharist, rather than what's the sort of um, atomic structure of the Eucharist itself. For Clement of Alexandria, writing over in Egypt, to drink the blood of Jesus is to partake of the Lord's immortality. Again, this this sense that like when we are receiving Holy Communion, we are the ones being transformed by this transformed bread and wine. He says, The Eucharist, renowned and beauteous grace, and those who partake of it in faith are sanctified in both body and soul. Clement of Alexandria also says that eating and drinking the divine word, the word incarnate, Jesus Christ, eating and drinking the divine word is the knowledge of the divine essence. So it's not only our bodies that are being transformed, but even our minds. We are growing in our capacity to have relationship with Christ, to understand Christ, to understand who God himself is through this eating and drinking of the bread and the wine, the body and the blood. And because it's so precious, Tertullian over in Carthage tells us, it's a matter of anxious care that no drop of wine or fragment of the bread should fall to the ground. This this is the most precious thing that we have, the body and blood of Christ. And so we treat the body and blood of Christ as we treat Christ with the maximum amount of honor and awe. There are about a million other examples of the fathers reflecting on the Eucharist. But in almost all of them, there's no picking it apart to tell you exactly how the transformation takes place or what the transformation is, and it's more just this love and reverence and awe for this great and holy mystery through which we ourselves are transformed. So food gives us life, eating and drinking keeps us alive like oxygen, it's these little units of life that we take into ourselves and they they maintain and sustain and become and transform our bodies, and the Eucharist is the same, but for our total being, our eternal life, our body and soul, we are being, through it, tra- changed into the body of Christ. So we as Christians gather as the body of Christ, we pray and we receive the body of Christ, and we are transformed into the body of Christ. That is kind of what the Eucharist is about for the early church. And here you may be saying, hold up. I thought you said this was not transubstantiation, but this sounds like transubstantiation to me. I mean, if they really believe it's the body and blood of Christ, isn't that the same thing? Well, transubstantiation is not the belief that the Eucharist is, in fact, the body and blood of Christ. That's just the real presence. That's just this, this idea that Christ is actually present in the sacrament. That's just the teaching of Christianity everywhere, always, for the first 1,500 years of Christianity. 
Transubstantiation actually comes from about a thousand years after the period we're talking about. And it's not in any way a rival claim or a, a um, deficient claim about the Eucharist. It's just a very different way of thinking about the Eucharist. So transubstantiation comes from St. Thomas Aquinas, who is a very devout and holy and pious and good and kind and loving uh, preacher and teacher in 13th century France. And in Thomas's time, the language of academics was the language of Aristotle. And so Thomas thought for those who are maybe not believers or for those who want to contemplate their faith in a deeply meaningful intellectual way, let me try and lay out what happens in the Eucharist in terms of Aristotle's philosophy. It's an Aristotelian concept of what might be going on in the Eucharist. It's not a bad thing at all. It's not, uh, you can either believe in the early church version or the transubstantiation version. It's more of a deep dive into the philosophy and maybe even the science of the Eucharist. My tradition, the Episcopal Church, as well as the Eastern Orthodox tradition, is not invested in this philosophical deep dive into what might be happening. For us, the Eucharist is just a holy mystery. It's this holy gift of God, and we know that we are transformed by it. What actually happens in the bread and the wine, how it can be that it is totally bread and totally wine and totally the body and blood of Jesus Christ, who knows, way above our pay grade, astonishing, miraculous, crazy, wonderful, but totally incomprehensible by people with little tiny brains like myself. That being said, this philosophical exploration of the Eucharist, transubstantiation, has been profoundly meaningful to millions of incredibly faithful Christians over the last uh, 900 years or however long it's been. And so, this is in no way to cast dispersions on transubstantiation. It is to say that it's maybe putting a finer point on things than the fathers and mothers of the early church did. So where does the Eucharist actually come from? If there's this continuity of belief across all these different geographic regions and all these different periods for the first 1,500 years of Christianity, if there is all this parity uh, between practice, how the Eucharist is done in all these different places, how it kind of looks similarly in Ethiopia and India and France and Rome and the UK, like all these different places, they're doing something extremely similar liturgically. How does all this come to be? Where does it come from? Well, we believe it was taught by the Lord Jesus Christ to the apostles, and it was given by the apostles to every place where they began the church. The apostles, the disciples, their disciples, their disciples, their disciples. It's this core part of the apostolic tradition. But even beyond that, the Eucharist comes from the liturgy of the temple. Next time, we will dive into both the roots of our understanding of the Eucharist in terms of temple worship and temple theology, and also look at what happened in the 1500s when people started to say, wait a minute, all this stuff, bread and wine, body and blood, that can't be literal, right? Like, maybe we need to kind of separate this stuff out and think metaphorically about this. How did that transformation take place? How did that process take place? So next time, more Eucharist. I promise it will not be two months before we get to it like last time. I'm not taking another sabbatical, at least not for another seven years. And uh, I just, I really appreciate you listening in. It's great to spend some time with you exploring the history of Christianity. <laughs>